So, Mark. Yes. Last Friday, a film was released in theaters. Okay. This is typical of most Fridays, I know. Yeah, usually there's at least one. Last Friday, a film was released by 20th Century Fox titled The Art of Racing in the Rain. This is our third talking dog narrates the lives of the humans around the movie to be released this year. What is happening? What is happening? Why is this happening? How is this a genre? This one movie may be followed up by a sequel the next year, but the fact that there are three being released that are technically three separate films they're not in the same universe even though two are based on a book by the same author just blows my mind so two years ago we had a dog's purpose a movie that abused dogs on set indeed that was about a reincarnating dog right where it was the same dog but like at one point he was a police dog and at another point he was like a little puppy and all kinds of stuff and the sequel to that one is a dog's journey Or A Dog's Way Home. Or A Dog's Way Home. They appear to be the same movie. There's another one with a reincarnating dog. Yes. The Art of Racing in the Rain is only one dog. So in this one, Kevin Costner is the dog. I cannot speak to it extensively because I have seen the trailer and categorically refuse to watch all of these movies. I am not a dog person. These movies look way too just like... Frankly, kind of manipulative. Yeah, they seem so falsely sentimental. There's a point at the end of this trailer where the Kevin Costner dog is thinking about how he hopes that... Who is it? Amanda Seyfried? <laughs> Amanda Seyfried. Will have a child that looks like him. Something. Which, frankly, would be a more interesting movie. <laughs> yeah, it's Kevin Costner as a golden retriever saying, It must be great to have the ability to grow a new like thing inside you. And Dogs like, can do that! I know, I'm just like, what the f- is happening in this trailer that's not a human exclusive thing i guess it's a gender politics movie at the same time i don't know because it seems that the thing is the the dad drives race cars this is milo ventimiglia and driving race cars is dangerous so the dog is worried why do we keep making these movies i don't know because they keep making money i guess people like dogs you know how much money a dog's purpose made how much too much because they abuse dogs it made 64 million dollars what was its budget uh 22 so it basically tripled its budget in january what the i don't get it a dog's journey opened on may 17th on a budget of na (laughs) or according to box office mojo it is domestic total is 22 million dollars though yeah so it seems like there's a real drop off here it seems that maybe you should have made one followed by a sequel seeing how the sequel does instead of making three except no because they're made by different studios that's true they're all trying to milk the same cash cow and the thing is a dog's purpose and a dog's journey were made by universal in between in january of this year in the same slot basically that a dog's purpose came out a dog's way home Makes $42 million. Oh my god, what is happening? So it may not be that audiences aren't here for more of these. It might just be that they aren't here for what appeared to be the same movie twice in five months. That's fair. But what's the difference between A Dog's Way Home and the other? Anyway, what is happening with these movies? I don't know. I hope they stop. I guess they don't really affect me. No, it's just so weird. It's a weird trend. Like I said, I don't understand how this has become a genre. Like, I hear a lot about the glut of superhero movies, which I think is a thing. It's an absolutely valid take. But I think we're sleeping on the growing boom in 
talking dog narrates the life of human movies. And before we know it, we're going to be seeing the dog see you just exploding onto our screens. I think the real thing that's happening is the growing of false sentimental movies that are trying to manipulate you into feeling something without doing any real work. You're complaining about Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah, exactly. That movie that came out and we may have seen just really working, trying to get you to cry, even though there's putting no work into why you should cry. Okay, full disclosure, I have not seen Hobbs and Shaw. Some of those Fast and Furious movies do real emotional work. I'm sure, especially the one where the guy... Where Paul Walker Paul died. Walker dies. I hear they handled that actually really beautifully in the series, but... Just because cars are crashing does not mean people also don't have hearts. Yeah, I want to watch one. I've never seen a Fast and Furious movie. They change dramatically. That's what I also hear, which is why I find it fascinating, the concept. The history of that franchise is bizarre. Yeah. In terms of, like, its actual internal continuity. Right. And the fact that I don't think they're in chronological order. No, they are not. Their naming conventions is the greatest thing that's ever happened to cinema, maybe. I will say, Too Fast, Too Furious is possibly the greatest sequel name of all time. It is. I don't know if it's been topped, except maybe Step Into the Electric Boogaloo. I mean, there is that. (laughs) Excuse me, Break Into. I was thinking also of Step Up. But I also think the fate of the Furious, where it's F8 because it's the eighth movie, also a nice touch. It's not officially styled that way. No. But I've seen it written that way, but it's not official. They just go for it and don't care about their sequel names. It's good stuff. I love it. Tokyo Drift. That's one of those ones like Electric Boogaloo that just gets attached to any sequel name. One of my favorite memes was when people were doing the Fast and the Furious sequel names to other things. I think one was Toy Story, Two Toy, Two Story. I'm trying to remember the others. Anyway, we didn't see Hobbs and Shaw yet. But maybe we will, and maybe we'll recommend it. Anything else up ahead that you're particularly excited about here in the waning days of summer? August this month seems rough, so probably not. August historically is kind of a dumping ground for studios in the same way that like January or February often are in the winter. The theory is that audiences get kind of exhausted by blockbusters in May, June, and July by awardsy family movies in November, December, and then aren't going to the theaters as much. So if you have something that is going to appeal to a smaller audience or something that you think is going to underperform, you dump it in January or in August. And then when your movie doesn't make any money, you can be like, oh, like audiences just weren't going to the theaters that month. I can't believe that our movie didn't make any money. It's just a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. It is. And there have been exceptions in recent years. Guardians of the Galaxy was released in August and did very, very well. On a less high-quality example, Suicide Squad was an August release, and that was awarded an Oscar and made a ton of money. Crazy Rich Asians also came out in August last year. Absolutely. A great movie. But on the other hand, every year we see these failures at the box office in August, in part because studios dump things in there. The one that I always think about is Leap, which is, I believe, the last film released under the Weinstein Company label. It was an animated film about, like... Is that the ballerina one? Yeah, it's like an animated ballerina thing. And when it came out that weekend, there was all this hemming and hawing about how, like, audiences were disappearing because nobody had gone to see these new movies. And, like, 
the anniversary re-release of Close Encounters had beat out a bunch of new releases. I will admit I was a part of that. I went to see Close Encounters because it's great. And then like two weeks later, it came out and was like the biggest fall movie of all time. Yeah, Leap is the source of a Carly Rae Jepsen song, and that is all I know about that movie. Interesting. It is important, because this is a thing we've talked about. It is styled Leap! Exclamation point. Good. Good choice on their part. In the grand tradition of such films as Boo! A Medea Halloween, and our developing project, The President Elopes! Exclamation point. Indeed. Well, there you go. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast committed to examining the most pressing, urgent issues of our day. Namely, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we will dig in and we'll see what's there. It's our mission. It's our quest. We cannot stop. We'll drive through the hills. We'll go back and forth and back and forth a couple of times to figure out the information we're trying to get. And this week, our investigation takes us back to 1967 to look at Mike Nichols' Ode to Ennui, The Graduate. I had never seen this film before. Neither had I. But I've heard a lot of the songs used in it. Really? (laughs) And I have seen the poster. And I have heard the oft-misquoted line. I'm trying to remember which one is the fake version and which is the real version. I watched this movie yesterday and can't remember. It's one of the most misquoted lines, I think. It's right up there with The Empire Strikes Back. Right. The fake one, I think, is you're trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson. But the real one is like, Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Indeed. They're very similar. So this, of course, is a movie that has a lot of different iconic pieces to it, from its visual storytelling to the actual performances at the center, to, as you mentioned, the Simon and Garfunkel of it all. Great choices. Absolutely. And this is kind of the peak of Simon and Garfunkel's career. They had been touring, they had had two hit records, and Mike Nichols was a fan of them and approached them to write music for the movie, and they had kind of gone back and forth about whether to do it, because from their perspective... At the height of the 60s, going Hollywood is selling out. And at this point, they're playing protests. Right. They agree to do it because they get on board with Nichols, and he really impresses them with what he's got to say. At this point, he is a few years removed from his comedy work with Elaine May. He's been directing plays on Broadway, a lot of Neil Simon, stuff like that. And he gets them on board to write a couple of songs. In the meantime, he starts using some of their existing songs, things like The Sound of Silence, Scarborough Fair, as placeholders, and eventually decided that those songs were too inextricably linked to the work that he was doing to switch them out for something new. Did they even really write songs for this movie? They have Mrs. Robinson, which was originally Mrs. Roosevelt. So... Mrs. Robinson is a song that's, like, impossible to figure out exactly how it fits in with this movie because everyone tells different stories about it. It is true that it was originally written as Mrs. Roosevelt, this song about changing American values. Right, which that title makes the Joe DiMaggio verse make more sense to me. Sure. It's worth noting that verse does not appear in the movie. No, it doesn't. But to hear some people involved talk about it, Roosevelt, by the time they were actually working on the movie, was kind of a placeholder and they were switching out all sorts of different three-letter names. To hear other people talk about it, they changed the name in order to use it in the movie. Right. But even there, like this music is so essential to the way that the movie works. Mrs. Robinson, I think, is never better used than when the guitar is trailing off. 
as Ben's car dies along the highway. Yeah. I think the reason that I liked this movie was more of the technical elements than the story myself. Choices like that, the shot of him on the Travelator in the airport to open the movie where everyone's walking around him, but it's just a blank wall behind him, which you'd never see in an airport now because that is valuable ad space. Sure, and that's one of the several times in the movie that we have the sound of silence playing. Right, and the shot of him in the scuba suit and then through the mask going underwater in the scuba suit. Stuff like that, I think, is really what elevates this movie. Because personally, to be honest, hot take, throwing it out early, Ben's annoying, and I don't care for him. But I think that's the point. I think he's a guy who is just so fundamentally adrift and doesn't know what to do with himself that he can't do anything but just exist there. I read this thing from Mike Nichols where he said, it's the story of a not particularly bright, not particularly remarkable, but worthy kid drowning among objects and things. He doesn't have the moral or intellectual resources to do what a large percentage of other kids like him do to rebel, to march, to demonstrate, to turn on. Ben, for all we're told that the people around him think very highly of him, his parents' friends, we never see him with people his own age. He's just this kind of bland dude literally floating in the middle of nothing. Right. Roger Ebert re-reviewed the movie like 30 years after it came out and was just like, I can't believe that I didn't think Mrs. Robinson was the hero of this film in 1967, essentially. I don't think this is a film that needs heroes. No, it doesn't. But he talks about how great she is, and I was just like, she is so great. But I don't know. I think this movie says a lot of cool stuff, but the technical elements of this movie, watching it, it's so beautiful. And that's where I was really like, I love everything about this. Sure, and some of that is stuff with the use of music, particularly Simon and Garfunkel, but there is a little bit of score in there as well that I think is well deployed. Yeah. You talked a lot about the visual style. This movie was shot by Robert Surtees who is a legendary cinematographer. By this point, he'd already won three Oscars, including one for Ben-Hur. He would go on to shoot many more movies, including one that we've covered, the 1976 production of A Star is Born, when he exercised his skill by shooting Barbra Streisand in very pretty light. I wonder how much work he did on that movie, besides Barbra Streisand telling him where to shoot her from. I mean... That's all the movie asked for. I know. That was probably an easy paycheck for him. I don't know. I feel like that... But he also had to get yelled at by Barbra Streisand a lot. Everything we know about that production is that it was hell. That sounds like one of the worst production processes of any movie we've covered on this show. Oh, absolutely. But I really did enjoy this movie. It's so good. It's so good. And all of the performances are great. I think that this movie... I have seen so much other stuff based off of it, referencing it, making fun of it, where it was one of those things where I went into it less. You never can tell how good the original is based off of the parodies. Have you ever seen the film Rumor Has It? I have heard of it, and I kind of want to now. I will watch just about anything. It takes a lot for me to turn a movie off. I could not finish Rumor Has It. You tried? Oh, yes. When? Uh, like six months ago. Oh, my God. I could not finish Rumor Has It. It sounds so awful. It is quite dreadful. The premise of the movie is that Jennifer Aniston figures out that her family is the family that The Graduate is based on, and she tracks down the movie's equivalent of Ben, who is now an adult, like, 
older man played by Kevin Costner. So this being the graduate, it means Kevin Costner has slept with Aniston's mom and grandmother. And you know what happens in the movie. Jennifer Aniston breaks up with Mark Ruffalo because it's that period and starts hooking up with Kevin Costner. That's horrifying. Yes. That's absolutely horrifying. It's also quite bad. I can't imagine. What a weird idea for a movie. Yeah, and the movie, like, makes it explicit in dialogue, like, oh, yeah, like, all the women in this family hook up with you, Kevin Costner. That's voice of the dog in The Art of Racing in the Rain. That's disgusting. It's really weird. I can't imagine. Because who watches The Graduate and is like, wow, this is a healthy situation in which a man hooks up with a mom and daughter? I mean, rumor has it does not think that that was a healthy situation. Yeah. Rumor has it basically posits that, like, this family is still a mess decades later. I just can't imagine you can add something to the narrative by showing how messy this family still is. No. It's weird. And it's worth noting, this movie, The Graduate, is based on a novel by Charles Webb, who was 24 when he wrote it. And in the book, he has said that it's partially about his wife, who at the time was named Eve. She changed her name to Fred. But... It's also partially inspired by the wife of one of his father's business associates, who he later named in an interview, like, years later, Jaina Erickson. And, like, that's kind of a weird thing. He says they never had any relationship, but that's still kind of weird. And here's to you, Mrs. Erickson. Here's to you, Mrs. Erickson. That could have been the song. But he actually did ultimately write a sequel to this in 2007, And it's set in the 1970s about Ben and Elaine fighting to have their kids homeschooled because Ben is disenchanted with education. The author of this, I think my favorite thing I learned about this movie is the author's family is so weird. His son ate a copy of his father's book with cranberry sauce. Yeah, Charles Webb is a real weirdo. So like he just believed in forsaking as much of society as possible. He was like a real hardcore hippie. He totally renounced material success, tried to get rid of as much of his money as possible. He gave the copyright on this book to the Anti-Defamation League so that they would profit rather than him. He's wound up, like, working at Kmart, doing all kinds of weird jobs. He eventually published this sequel because he was going to get evicted and needed money. The sequel was received miserably, but sold well enough that he didn't have to leave his home. He gave away houses, which I don't know how you do that. It's got to be complicated. I know, because I feel like the other people probably have to pay a bunch of taxes. So hopefully they were ready to receive a house and it wasn't just like he threw the deed at you as you were walking down the street, which sounds like something this man would do. Quite possibly. So the book came out and Lawrence Terman, who was a relatively green producer, read a review of it in the New York Times and then decided to see if he could buy the rights. Nobody else was competing for them. So Terman bought up the rights and started trying to get it made into a movie because he thought it sounded like a really good idea. He teams up with Mike Nichols, who, like I said, has been directing on Broadway at this point, and they start working to try to get this thing made, and they spend ages fighting to get the financing because, at this point, Nichols is not known as a film director. The Graduate is only his second movie that he directed. The first one, also nominated for Best Picture, had not yet come out. That movie was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And it was the fact that he was getting that movie made and the caliber of the cast involved that they were able to leverage to get the financing to make The Graduate. And it seems that everyone wanted to be in this movie. Yeah, basically every major actor from the period 
has been linked in some way. Now, how close those people actually were to being involved varies depending on who you ask. Right. But this was very much a hot project in part because as much as some of Hollywood wasn't aware of him, in the acting world, Mike Nichols was a big name. Right. With his Broadway and his comedy, people like Joan Crawford were asking to audition for this role of Mrs. Robinson. Ava Gardner campaigned hard for it. Doris Day turned it down. Because she and her husband slash manager thought it was scandalous. Fair. And I think the worst thing I read was Mike Nichols to all of these women was like, I want Mrs. Robinson to be played by a younger woman. And that's why Anne Bancroft at 34 plays the role against Dustin Hoffman, who is 30 when this movie was filmed. I think he's 29, but yeah. Okay, still. It's about a five or six year age difference and she has to be playing older because she has a 19 20 year old daughter so mike nichols's response to that was nobody's playing their age i mean even Catherine ross is like 27 at this point so he was like look we've got people playing all sorts of different directions she was yeah wow she looks young yeah exactly she's the old i didn't look up her age she was the only one i assumed was the right age no and so that was nichols defense but It does seem particularly jarring with Anne Bancroft, who got involved herself in part because she was married to Mel Brooks, who had co-created the TV series Get Smart with Buck Henry, who was brought on to write the screenplay for this movie. So Nichols and Lawrence Terman were trying to get the movie made, and they first brought on the screenwriter Calder Willingham to write an adaptation, but Willingham hated the book. And so he wrote this really obnoxious version of the screenplay, like openly hating everybody involved, and also a much, much raunchier version of it, and was like, I hate this book, but here's what I got. And Nichols was like, yeah, I hate your screenplay. We're bringing someone else on. So most of the movie we got was written by Buck Henry, but in WGA negotiations for credit, Willingham still got a screenwriting credit. And Bancroft and Mel Brooks was such couple goals. They were so cute. It's pretty cool. Another great showbiz couple associated with this movie. Catherine Ross is married to Sam Elliott. I saw that and I died. Can you imagine being married to Sam Elliott? I could only wish for something so amazing. Imagine waking up and the first thing you hear in the morning is Sam Elliott's drawl. Morning, Catherine. Oh, dreams. Just gotta go trim my mustache. I don't think he trims that every day. He has to make sure it's luxurious and long. I gotta go brush my hands lovingly through my mustache, unless you'd like to do it for me, Catherine. Gross. I love you, Mark. (laughs) You're the only one for me. Sam Elliott plays one of Jane Fonda's love interests on Grace and Frankie, if you needed any motivation to watch that show. So also in our cast, one of the big surprising things is the presence of Dustin Hoffman in his film debut. I can't believe this is his first movie. Yeah. He's, as you said, almost 30 and had kind of locked in doing stage work and was very much in a place where he kind of accepted, all right, I'm a stage actor. I'm good with that. And Nichols flew him out to Los Angeles to do a screen test, which Hoffman very much felt did terribly. He felt super uncomfortable doing it. He felt uncomfortable with the screenplay in terms of how he fit into it. He's like, this is not a role for someone who looks like me. The book called for someone who was like tall and blonde and muscular, what Hoffman later called a walking surfboard. There's a lot of those people in the movie. Right, which makes Hoffman stand out even more. And apparently the actual screen test was like super awkward 
where he wasn't really being able to engage with Catherine Ross, which Nichols actually liked. He enjoyed the uncertainty of that, and that's how Hoffman ultimately winds up getting the part. And he's really good, but boy, were the reviews anti-Semitic. Yes. <laughs> the stuff people were writing about him, they were basically just like, wow, this man has a big nose and is too Jewish looking. Right. But what happens instead is Hoffman becomes the forerunner in a way of the like Jewish romantic leads that we get first in Woody Allen movies, later in like Judd Apatow, things like that. Right. There's definitely a line that you can draw to him through like Woody Allen, Adam Sandler, yeah, Seth Rogen. The funny Jewish male lead right. becomes kind of a more prominent thing. But at the time, he was like the first or one of the first Jewish male leads. Or at least openly so. He's oh, yeah. a guy who didn't change his name to get into show business. Right. I'm sure that there are a lot of Jewish people working in Hollywood before then, but they weren't as out front with it. Jewish stars of the 30s and 40s anglicized their names typically well so did everyone yes <laughs> my favorite is lucy lesseur who became joan crawford because her name just sounded too much like sewer it is worth noting also in that screen test with Catherine ross that dustin hoffman feeling uncertain and perceiving on his part that Catherine ross was as well tried to relax them both by pinching her in the behind which is not cool no not at all Catherine Ross immediately turned around and told him to never do it again. Good for her. Yeah. That is a bold move. She is really good in this movie. She's great. She doesn't have too many lines, but her acting is so strong. We get to see a lot in that performance. And she gets a nomination for it, even though it's really, it's a big role in the movie, but there's not a ton of dialogue as part of it. Sure. This movie was very well received when it came out. It got a number of Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Dustin Hoffman, Best Actress for Anne Bancroft, as you said, Supporting Actress for Catherine Ross, as well as Adapted Screenplay and Cinematography, and Mike Nichols won for Best Director, which is certainly hard to argue with. Definitely. In most of its other categories, it got beat out by either In the Heat of the Night or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which we talked about a few months ago. Big year for movies. Big year for movies. Because this is also the year Bonnie and Clyde came out, which, while it wasn't as awarded, still was very influential in how movies were made. Sure. Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were both people who were in the mix for this movie and took themselves out in order to do Bonnie and Clyde. Gina Hackman, actually, who was also in Bonnie and Clyde, was originally cast as Mr. Robinson, but was fired during rehearsals. He was fired? During rehearsals. This movie had three weeks of rehearsals on, like, a taped-out set. Very much like a theatrical production. Yeah. That's crazy. Have you watched Bonnie and Clyde? I have not. They are so hot in that movie. I mean, that's kind of the premise, <laughs> right? That what is the premise. Hot? Yeah. And it's like, the premise of that movie is, what if these two hot people died? And it works. Sure. As we said, this movie, in addition to being a hit at the Oscars, was also a huge financial success shockingly so yeah it grossed in 1967 105 million dollars against its three million dollar budget good god on the adjusted for inflation list of the biggest movies of all time the graduate ranks 23rd which is astonishing when you consider the movie that it is people were thinking it was gonna beat gone with the wind at the time it was so big just kept growing 
It just kept growing and people kept going back to see it again and again. There are articles that you can find from places like The New Yorker and The New York Times trying to figure out, like, what is it that we love about this movie that everyone keeps going back to see it and is bragging about how much they've seen it? It is fascinating. This is a movie that I could see doing well, but the fact that it's 23rd is just shocking. Yeah. It is a $3 million budget movie, which at the time is a lot. Right, but today you would see this movie, like, maybe premiere at Sundance and, like, Fox Searchlight releases it in September. Yeah. And it does, like, a tidy 21 if it has a good run. Right, but movies have changed, to say the least. Indeed. This was a Christmas release. It came out December 22nd. (laughs) What a fun, wholesome family trip to the movies. Yeah. This would be kind of a weird movie to watch with your parents in 1967. It'd be kind of a weird movie to watch with your parents at any time. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's not very explicit, which I like about it. I think that's really important to it. Yeah. It's not about the sex. No, it's not about sex at all. For a movie about sex, it is not about sex. There are no real shots of them even in the same bed. There are some. There are some, but most of them, someone is walking around and someone is laying down in terms of Mrs. Robinson and Ben. And that led to weird things in the development of it and the marketing of it where you have people like Doris Day staying away from it because they thought it was too sexual. There's actually a point where the financer, Joseph Levine, who mostly made like kind of schlocky movies like Hercules and stuff like that, he started showing it to other Hollywood executives, and this is where a lot of the anti-Semitism comes in. They're talking about, like, oh, you made, like, a pretty good movie, but you totally miscast the lead, Joe. And he's started to worry about it, and he's like, well, maybe we don't go for a big release. He wanted to put it in art house theaters, which in 1967 basically means, like, softcore porn theaters. Right. And he actually started setting up risque photo shoots to advertise it with stuff like Dustin Hoffman, like, naked from the back, and, like, Anne Bancroft, like, lounging past him. And it was, like, all good to go on that front until Mike Nichols found out about that and shut it down. There is some, like, there is some nudity. Sure. For real. But it never crosses into that world at all. And when there is, it's some of that visual style of Nichols and Surtees where... When Mrs. Robinson is first trying to seduce Ben, and we're getting just those flashes of different parts of her body, almost like Ben is looking and looking away and looking and looking away, and it's all in this very, like, almost like a Hitchcock horror movie. What an awesome moment. Yeah. And then you get the stripper doing that thing that I can't even fathom how people do. Oh my god. Turning the tassels in two different ways. Yeah, so she's basically gyrating her breasts in different directions. I don't know how it works. It looks exhausting. It looks tiring. Because you got to remember, you're talking multiple takes there. Yes. And that is a woman who was a real exotic dancer using it to pay for med school. And she is my favorite person in that movie, maybe, as a result. I mean, it's because of who she is in real life. A pretty incredible physical feat to be able to do. It's an insane physical feat, and they... I'm sure filmed many takes of that scene. Yeah. That's just, it was, every time something like that shows up, like with a burlesque performance in a movie, I can't stop thinking about it for a while because I just don't understand the physics of it or the physiology. I'm sure if you tried, you could get there, Mark. I don't know. 10,000 hours. (laughs) 10,000 hours. If you've ever actually 
understood how that works, please email us and let me know. Or tweeted at us, hashtag tassel twist. I'm sure that's what the dance move is called. Not a terrible name for it. It's pretty good. Should we start talking about the romance says plural? Yeah, let's do I guess. it. So every week on We Love the Love, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points that summarize that romance and let us dig in a little deeper. So I think it's time for us to dig into the romance of The Graduate. Yeah, we'll cover basically all of the movie through this. Sure, because that's what it's about. So I will say, before we do that, I just think it's worth noting, this movie is funny. This movie is really funny. And I should have expected that coming from Mike Nichols, but it's much funnier than I thought it would be. Right. And Mike Nichols, we have also covered on this podcast before. Right. He directed The Birdcage. Which is also a very funny movie. Yeah. So I wasn't that surprised by how funny it was, but I did think it would be a bit darker, more dramatic. Sure. The reputation this movie has is like a great movie about like sex and forbidden romance in a way and seduction it's not a reputation that is like guys we got jokes yeah but mike nichols is so i feel like that name was probably enough for some people to know that it would be funny sure i mean he had already had a grammy winning comedy album with elaine may he had been on broadway doing his comedy pairing a lot of the shows that he directed are very funny who's afraid of virginia wolf very funny play i haven't watched that movie or play it's terrific. That movie has, like, Elizabeth Taylor in it, doesn't it? And Richard Burton. Yeah. And it was their involvement and their insistence on working with Mike Nichols that they used to convince Levine to finance The Graduate. We should watch that. I mean, I would be down, but who boy, is that romance a lot to deal with. <laughs> I can imagine. Especially when you add the fact that they are played by Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Yeah. Oh, man. Let's do it. Anyway. <laughs> The Graduate starts on Ben's birthday. Here we are. You got me into your house. You give me a drink. You put on music. Now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours. So? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. This is Ben, played by Dustin Hoffman, who again is 29 years old. But in this, he is 20 years old. He's about to turn 21. He's just graduated from college back east. They never specify where, although the author of the novel had gone to Williams College. Right. And according to, like, Wikipedia and reading summaries, apparently it seems clear that it's Williams, even though they never mention it, which at the time was a men's-only university, which I think if this book was even a little semi-autobiographical, you can kind of tell. Like, this man doesn't have a lot of experience with women. Right. And I think that is significant. Definitely. Because while the movie doesn't confirm it, I think it's clear that Ben has little to no experience with the women. Right. So it's his birthday, and the first shot is him arriving back home, and then it's his birthday, and... And he arrives back home, like, going through the airport, and it's all this machinery moving around him as the sound of silence plays, and we just get this deep sense of isolation. Yeah, this is not a person who is connected to people. And the movie does a good job showing that because Ben interacts with one person in a significant way who is his own age, and that is Elaine. And we see that isolation continue at this party that his parents throw, where, as we said, there's nobody his own age around. It's all his parents' friends as he wanders vacantly through it, not really talking to anybody. And so he ultimately just retreats to his room to stare at the fish in his tank. Fish being a very solitary creature that kind of just float around through things without interacting much. Especially when you have a fish tank 
at home. You know, fish in the wild, you can get schools and some social fish, but at home. Or they're going to seek out food. Right. But they'll have some kind of purpose. In a tank at your house, they're very just floating, doing nothing, and that's very much who he is. Right. We see him later literally floating around in a pool. In a scene that reminded me a lot of the B-movie, I'm assuming that this movie is riffing on B-movie. Yeah, I'm definitely sure it goes that way. Because there was that scene where Barry Benson couldn't decide what kind of job he wanted. There had been that whole thing at the beginning of the B-movie about how they live for like two days, but then that doesn't matter anymore. And then Barry Benson is just like on that raft in the pool of honey. Honey is also their money and also their food, but it's also the thing that they swim in. I didn't... (laughs) How did you remember that connection? I immediately thought of it. (laughs) I didn't think of that at all. I did not realize that B-Movie was riffing on this film with that scene. But now that you point it out, it is insane to me that they did that. I don't think you understand how often I argue with my students about DreamWorks movies. Anyway, Ben gets forced downstairs for a bit, but then manages to make his way back to his room where he's sitting alone. And Mrs. Robinson, who we never got a first name of. I was about to say that. Only referred to as Mrs. Robinson, opens the door and is like, well, this isn't the bathroom. But clearly she knows it's not the bathroom. Because she comes in and sits down and starts smoking. Yeah. And is just like, do you have an ashtray? And then she goes, oh, wait, you're the big athlete. You don't smoke. And just taps Ash onto his bed. This is an incredible performance by Anne Bancroft. It's unbelievably good. It is, like, cool in a lot of ways, especially in the first, say, third of the movie. Just seems totally unflappable, knows exactly what she wants, and isn't going to mess around in pursuit of it. But later in the movie, we get this real sense of loss and kind of fear. Yeah, this that is, runs underneath it. This is a woman who struggles with alcoholism, is in an unhappy marriage, and is looking for any way to re-exert control over something. And I think, at least to me, what I took away is this woman is just looking for something to feel in control of. And in this case, it's this young man who is clearly unversed in the ways of the world, to say the least, where she's just like, I'm just going to take charge of the situation. So she asks Ben if the thing that's bothering him is a girl. And he's like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And in response, she asks him to drive her home. She's like, my husband left. I need a ride. Drive me. And it's never an option. He tries to say no, but eventually he tries to say no to a lot of what she says, but she always manages to convince him except for one crucial point, which is point three. So we will get there. So he drives her home when they pull up in front of her house. She asks him to go in with her because she doesn't feel safe till she gets the lights on. Then once they're in, she asks him to walk to the back of the house to turn on all the lights, then asks him to stay for a drink. And she just keeps, in a way, moving the goalposts, getting him deeper and deeper. Right. And just physically deeper and deeper into the house. They move upstairs, even, into Elaine's room. The house almost has, like, a lair quality. It's very dark and... The main colors, except for in Elaine's room, are black and white. And it's, like, kind of jungly in a way, yeah. too. I love the, like, weird sphere that's on a pole that just says bar yeah. on their bar. We need one of those. We do need one of those. We don't have a bar. The closest well, we would get be a bar. the top of our mini fridge. But Done. let's do it. So she then says, hey, we had this portrait done of our daughter Elaine. You should come up and we can check it out. And this is the first of a couple of moments in this scene that are pretty weird in the way people interact discussing Elaine. So they go up to look at this portrait, and he's like, oh yeah, that's a pretty good portrait. Can I go home now? 
And at this point, Mrs. Robinson is all in like, oh, you have to stay till my husband gets home. I don't like being home alone. What do you think of me? You've known me your whole life. Laying that all out there for all of us. Do we know that her husband is his dad's business partner specifically at this point? We do not. Okay. Because that is very important, in my opinion. Absolutely. And it's around this point that Ben is catching on to what Mrs. Robinson is building towards. Well, he figures it out very quickly. Yes. Because it's within the first, like, four minutes of their interaction that he says... You're trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson. Down in the bar, there's the famous shot through the leg. Right. And so then he figures it out. She's just like, I'm going to go shower. As one does. And just goes and showers. But it's worth noting that she denies trying to seduce him, which flusters him. He starts apologizing repeatedly. Right. He's like, that was totally inappropriate. I was way out of line. Can I go? Because I am so embarrassed. She's like, no, you are not allowed to leave. She later asks if he would like her to seduce him, and it's after she takes a shower that we get her naked and these flashes of him looking at her and looking away. And as part of this, she's like, Ben, I need you to bring me my purse while she's in the shower. And he's like, oh, put it at the bottom of the stairs. She's like, no, bring it to me. And it starts very seductive. But by the end, she's straight up annoyed at him. Which is interesting. I do think this is also a very strange situation where he clearly is uncomfortable and wants to leave right and And is basically being coerced into getting deeper and deeper with this oh for sure she is definitely taking advantage of him she's like using her position of authority in his life in a way to force him to continue along her path towards sex yeah the power dynamics are pretty uncomfortable yeah when you dig into it and this is certainly an abuse of a type of power that exists. And while this absolutely is not rape, it's interesting that that's sort of the flip script that she uses when she turns on him. Right. But that comes much later. Yes. As for now, we get the whole naked shot thing, but then Mr. Robinson, who we also don't get a first name of, comes home and Ben is very flustered. He's very flustered. Meanwhile, Mr. Robinson is like super happy to see him, super congratulatory, like, hey, nicely done. What are you planning on doing with yourself? Yeah. And Ben's like, I have no idea. I don't know what kind of job I would want to do. I haven't applied to graduate school. I have zero plans. And Mr. Robinson is like, that's great. You know, I think of you as a son. And what I want you to do as my son is just have a bunch of fun. Sow your oats. Go out with a ton of girls. You know what? My daughter's coming home in a couple weeks. Go out with her, which feels weird. It's weird to go from the, like, sow your wild oats directly to you should date my daughter. But these are people where it would make sense for the parents to want to push them together. So I buy that. It's just weird to go from basically, like, go have your fun, be promiscuous, but also my daughter is available. It does feel kind of like the inversion of the, like, super overprotective father Kind of notion that we saw in something like Crazy Stupid Love. Right. But this eventually allows Ben to escape, and he drives home. Yeah. Now, before we actually get to point two, we do have the scuba scene. Was there anything else you wanted to say about that? What is that giant pole? It's a harpoon gun. Why does he have that? Because he's surrounded by things that are effectively meaningless in his life. His dad bought the scuba suit, thought the harpoon gun was cool, and bought it. And in making Ben model this thing, because Ben is an object to his parents as well... He is. ...have the cool thing along with it. It's interesting, because I think Ben sees himself as an object to his parents. But I don't know if his parents are bad parents. 
They're not the best parents. They're not the best because they don't actually listen to what he wants. But they are parents that are like very proud of their son and provided him with a good education. And do have valid concerns about the fact that he seems to be totally aimless. Right. And like they're happy to put up with him moping around for a couple of weeks, but then are like, what's the plan here? Right. And then they're very excited when he, like, is planning on settling down with a girl. And then are very concerned when they realize that he has made these plans without talking to said girl. Right. And so I see from Ben's position how this... and why the movie does then portray it this way, how this would come across as, you know, objectifying your son and, like, he's only something to show off to your friends and you do get that vibe. But at the same time, it's interesting because I don't think the movie thinks that these are awful people, which is a cool touch. This movie gets framed a lot and got framed a lot when it came out as being a movie about the generation gap. And I think that's something that people like Ebert in their reassessment were like, well, this shows that this generation is stupid. Like, what were we talking about? I don't think it's a movie about the generation gap. I don't think it is either. I think it's a movie about, like I said at the beginning, it's about ennui. It's about this sense of disconnectedness and, in a way, futility. And what we get at the end is that Ben, for a moment, thinks that he is triumphing over that and then discovers, like, life isn't a movie and you have to figure out what comes next and he still has no idea right and that all happens with just facial expression and it's amazing it's such a cool scene but you're watching this i didn't really think of it as a generation gap and i think the fact that it is 1967 into 1968 which is the summer of love everything is going to get framed that way this is when vietnam protests are starting to happen in full force everything is changing in the country honestly so i understand why it gets painted with that brush but i don't see it being made that way so this takes us to point number two i'll be up in five minutes oh goodbye then benjamin yes isn't there something you want to tell me tell you yes well i want you to know how much i appreciate this really the number what the room number benjamin i think you ought to tell me that After the scuba session, when his dad makes him dive into the pool, Ben calls up Mrs. Robinson and is like, yo, I want to buy you a drink at a hotel. And so he goes to the Taft Hotel and he is the most awkward person on the planet. It's horrifying. It's very funny. He's like peering over the walls of the clerk's desk and the guy turns around and goes, oh, are you here for an affair? As in... Like a party. A party. And he goes to a wedding and then is just like pretending to try and get it and then immediately gives up and leaves. Because he's not particularly charming. He's not particularly clever. No. He's just there. Yeah. And so eventually she comes. They have a drink at the hotel. Which is still very awkward. Yeah. And she's like, you haven't gotten a room yet, you idiot. And so he uses a fake name to rent a room. And then he calls her up on the phone and it's like, cool. So I rented a room. And she's like, great. What's the number? (laughs) Yeah, he forgets to give her the room number, but eventually they get there, and it is the most awkward sex scene. My favorite moment of it, and just the perfect distillation of the fact that he has no concept of how to interact with women, we know socially, but also clearly romantically, is when he goes to kiss her, and it's the most, like, not aggressive in terms of, like, dominating, just, like, aggressive in terms of suddenness and force. Right. Just, like... 
basically bangs his head into hers. And there's no movement. But the best part is she has just taken a drag from a cigarette. And he, like, smashes his face against her. There's no movement. There's no, like, mouths opening or anything. And then he pulls back and she just slowly exhales the smoke that she's just been holding in her lungs, which is probably burning a little bit, and just blows it out. It's so cool. And awkward and hilarious. And so we've been talking about Ben as an object, and it's worth noting that Mrs. Robinson's interest here is not like, here's this exciting young man that I want to spend time with. It's like, here's a dude that I can use for sex. Like, after that, she just starts undressing, and it's like, come on, like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Take your clothes off. He is super uncomfortable. He starts banging his head against the wall like he's Charlie Brown having lost a baseball game, (laughs) and is like, look, yeah, you're the most attractive of my parents' friends, but could we, like, go to a movie or something like that? The funniest. That's one of my favorite lines in this movie is, yes, you are the most attractive of my parents' friends. Well, sure. Everyone ranks their parents' friends by attractiveness. This is a thing. Yeah, of course. Everyone has that note in their phone. Yeah. And then we go into this montage, cutting back and forth between him continuing this affair with Mrs. Robinson, having sex with her, meeting her up at the hotel, but also continuing to be totally disconnected in his own life, mostly sitting on his raft on the pool like Barry B. Benson and just not really doing anything. As he says, it's just comfortable to drift here. There's a lot of cool shots where it doesn't cut. It's like you follow his face in the shot and it transitions flawlessly from the hotel room to the pool and back with him. Like it'll cut from him laying on the raft to him being in the bed in the hotel room. It's such a cool montage. It's very well done. It's one of my favorite montages that we've ever watched. This is a four out of four on our Montauk scale. Yeah. Of course, the four was chosen for the number of montages in Shrek. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. So the montage kind of ends with Ben turning on the light in their bed in the Taft Hotel being like, look, can we have a conversation before we sex each other this time? Right. And it's a bad conversation. He's like, look, I just want to like get to know you maybe like we've been banging each other for a while. And she's like, we have nothing to talk about. We are here for each other's bodies. And he starts asking about her relationship with her husband and learns that they are not close romantically at all. They sleep in separate bedrooms. They got married because she got pregnant when they were both pretty young. She dropped out of school and has just kind of been leading this bummed out, disconnected life herself, where what has been presented as this steely remove is instead very much a mask to cover up how disappointed she is with her own life. Yeah, this is a very unhappy woman. And we've already talked about how she's an alcoholic and uses that to get through. Right, and he makes fun of her for all this. Well, especially when, at this point, once again, Elaine is going to be coming back into town. The last time she came to town, Ben did not contact her, did not ask her out. And now this time, his parents have been hitting him hard. Like, you should ask this girl out. It's rude of you not to. She's a nice girl. We're friends with the family. It's a nice gesture, and they say that if he doesn't, they'll just have all the Robinsons over for dinner. And so Ben tells Mrs. Robinson, like, hey, I'm going to ask your daughter out because the alternative is both of our families are socializing together, and I don't think I can handle that. Right. And she says, basically, under no circumstances are you allowed to date my daughter. She completely forbids it. And Ben gets really mad. He's like, you don't get to tell me what to do. Like, I am only having sex with you out of boredom. I'm not proud of hanging out with an alcoholic all the time. He's, like, really eviscerating her. It's unbearable to watch. Yeah, it's very harsh. 
And she starts pushing back on him at some point, saying, I didn't tell you that you couldn't go out with her, which is not really true. No, that is false. And he, though, immediately starts backpedaling. It's kind of an abusive relationship. It is. It's unhealthy, to say the least. Very much so. And starts saying, like, no, instead, like, oh, no, obviously I enjoy spending time with you. It's the only thing I look forward to, but I have to do this because I don't want my parents inviting you all over for dinner. Right. So eventually it ends with him taking Elaine on a date. Yes, which is this takes us to point number, point three. number three. I've had this feeling ever since I've graduated. This kind of compulsion that I have to be rude all the time. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. It's like I've been playing some kind of game, but the rules don't make any sense to me. Yeah, so he has asked Elaine on a date, and she has agreed, and it is a bad date. He is doing it purposefully to drive her away. Well, even before that, he arrives at the house to pick Elaine up, and Elaine's not ready yet, so he's invited in. Mr. Robertson is again making him the wrong drink, as he always does. Right. Scotch instead of bourbon. And... We see Mrs. Robinson lurking in her lair, but lurking is the wrong word. She's totally out of it. She may or may not be drunk, but she is just in a daze. We've got the newlywed game on the TV, and she's effectively refusing to interact with Ben. I don't think she looks up from the TV for more than like five seconds. No, and the newlywed game is not that captivating a television show. No. So eventually Elaine is ready and they get in the car and he drives like a maniac wearing sunglasses at night. Barely speaking to her, answering questions with one word. And then the date he takes her on is to a strip club he goes all the way up to the front so they're sitting right by the stage right so she has her back to the stage and he's like why aren't you watching the show you're missing a great performance this is the thing we talked about where laney miller is dancing up behind her doing the tassel twist and as i said it is very impressive but also very upsetting for elaine who we get the sense was probably kind of excited about this date and instead it's been kind of horrible and it ends with the dancer doing the tassel twists so that the tassels are swinging against Elaine's head. And it's pretty horrible. Yeah. And she is looking very upset, as she deserves to. She runs out and she, starts crying on the street. Yeah. She has, like, one tear go down her cheek in the strip club and runs out. And then his face, like, breaks. And he's like, oh, my God, why was I such a dick to her? And then feels bad for it and goes out to comfort her. And at first he's like, please don't cry. Like, I've just been doing this because I... Asked you out because my parents made me. Yeah. Which is a great thing to cheer someone up. Yeah. And And ultimately, the only way he can think of to get her to stop crying is to kiss her. I don't understand how she moves on from this at all. No. But he's insistent, like, I really like you. Can we try doing something else? So they go to a burger joint. And this is, like, the most alive that we ever see him. Yes. They're chatting at a burger place. He is making full sentences, which is pretty rare for his character. And he's talking about feeling disaffected. Yeah. He's talking about how, like, I graduated and I'm just here and I don't understand the rules for transitioning to adulthood. So I don't know what to do with myself. So I'm just here. And he realizes that, wow, spending time with someone your own age and not only 60-year-olds is a good thing. But also spending time with someone who is interested in you as a person. That too. Which we haven't really seen in any of his relationships so far. Right. Which is because they're coming at it in a certain way. They're coming at it as equals, which is new for him. He's not dealing with people who are in a position of power over him, like his parents or Mrs. Robinson. So they have a great time. They're driving around. They eventually make their way to the Taft because 
he takes her home and he's like, you know what? It's not so late. Like, we could drive around some more. Maybe we could go to a bar. And she's like, oh, I think the Taft has a bar. So everyone at the hotel knows him by his fake name, multiple fake names. And she eventually kind of pieces it together and is like, oh, you're having an affair with a married woman. And he's like, yeah, but it's over. Which it is not. There's been no official end. Sure, we haven't seen a scene where they, like, stop having sex with each other. Yeah. But I do kind of understand the scene where he goes to pick up Elaine and Mrs. Robinson wanting not even to engage with him as having an understanding that they are through. I think that he has decided that it is over, so I believe that, but... I just mean, like, I don't know if he has officially told Mrs. Robinson that it's over. I don't think they had a conversation, but I think yeah. she knows that him asking Elaine out is ending it. Because she has said, like, that'll be it. Right. I don't think they need to, like, have a heart-to-heart. No. So then after they talk about that, he drives her home. And agree to go on a date the next day. Yeah. And so the next day, he drives over, and it's raining, and Mrs. Robinson just runs into his car soaking wet. And it's like, don't you dare go out with her. Yeah. It's like, I forbid this from happening. If you go out with her, I will tell them everything. And so he wants to continue going out with her, so he wants to tell Elaine what happened from his side first. So he goes into the house to tell her, and and he's like, yo, that uh, older married woman that I told you I was sleeping with... About that. And for some reason, she doesn't take this too well. And yeah, she's kind of annoyed. She's kind of mad. And she's like, we're not going out anymore. And he's, I don't know why you would choose to do that when you find out that your married mother is sleeping with a man you're dating. It's a weird take. It's a weird take on her part. I think she's acting unreasonably. Yeah, she's a li- going a little overboard. My gosh. Choosing not to go on a second date with a man who has been sleeping with her mother. People are so emotional about people their age sleeping with their parents yeah it's so weird so she breaks up with him and i think like the next day goes back to berkeley yeah so that brings us to point four i was wondering where you were headed i'm meeting someone ah where where are you meeting this person at the zoo the zoo they have a pretty good one here do they where comes Ben downstairs one day with a pep in his step. He is more cheerful than we have seen him in some time. And his parents are like, oh, Ben, what are you doing? You decide to uh, go to grad school? You maybe get a job? Plastics, maybe? And Ben says, I am getting married. And he says he's marrying Elaine Robinson. And they're like, amazing. Awesome. She's so cool. Our families are so close. We got to call the Robinsons up. We got to celebrate. This is terrific. We're so excited. Of course, you're going up to Berkeley. You should be with her. When did you ask her? And he's like, I haven't. She has no idea that I'm planning this. And again, they've been on one date. Oh. Yeah. So then he drives to Berkeley. Basically moves there. And is just like sitting in the quad until he sees her for the first time. And then just hounds her after that yeah he's going to classes he at one point gets on a bus and follows her to the zoo right and basically is on a date that she's having with another man this guy carl and she is not totally shutting him down but i think especially in that bus scene you can see her kind of being like what is happening yeah but she is also not happy about this no and so he continues to just stay and she ultimately asks him like what are you doing here are you here because of me and he dodges the question for a while 
before saying yes. He has, like, taken up residence in a boarding house and is, like, attending classes. He's not enrolled. He's just, like, chilling in the back. Yeah. Because he won't connect to anything, even, like, signing up for school, which he could appease his parents by signing up to go to grad school at Berkeley. But that would have taken him time to get there. Right. And take it away from him stalking Elaine. So... Elaine finally is like, I'm not gonna have anything to do with you. My mom told me what you did to her. And this is when we learned that Mrs. Robinson told Elaine that, like, yes, they had had sex, but it was because Ben took advantage of her and raped her. Right. After driving her home. And Ben's like, that's not how it happened. Eventually she, I think this is the scene where she screams and gives, like, the most blood-curdling scream. It's a pretty great scream. And he gets kicked out of the boarding house. He kind of gets kicked out repeatedly, but it never sticks. Yeah, so this is the first time he basically gets kicked out of the boarding house because all the men there are like, this woman is screaming like she's being murdered. So I was thrown off because I had just watched Jaws a couple days before watching this, and I was like, boy, one of those guys looks familiar, but that can't possibly be it because that would be too absurd. But I was right. One of the guys in that boarding house is Richard Dreyfuss. Really? Like pre-Jaws, pre-famous. Oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy. So anyway, Ben at this point says, you know what, Elaine, let's get married. And she says she's not sure. It's not a no, but it's not a yes. Which puts him in a weird space. Yes. But also, he's put her in a weird space for a while. Right. We learned that she had previously said that she might marry this dude, Carl, from the zoo, who on paper seems like a pretty good guy. He's a hottie. He's handsome. He's a med student. Yeah. I think he's not a good guy. No. When we meet his friends, the way they talk about him suggests that he is a pretty bad guy. Yeah, they're basically like, oh, the only reason he'd be getting married is because he's knocked her up. That's the only possible reason this would happen, because Carl just loves hooking up with as many ladies as possible. He's the makeout king. Clearly doesn't respect women. Yeah, he is the makeout king. Anyway, they have this, like, weird flirtationship for a while where they keep meeting up. He, of course, has nothing else to do but hang out with her, so he'll, like, walk her to class and then wait outside that class to continue the conversation when she gets out. Right. And it seems like every interaction they have ends with, like, so, hey, are you going to marry me? And she's like, maybe? And I will say, on Ben's behalf, and like I said, I think Ben is a very creepy dude for having gone to Berkeley and stalked her like this, there is a finite amount of time that you get to answer that question with maybe. Right. That is true. But... I think it's around this time that Mr. Robinson shows up. Yeah, Ben comes home, and old Mr. Robinson is sitting on his bed. And And he is pissed because he has learned about the affair. Yeah, he is unhappy. Believe it or not, another person, frankly, overreacting to all of this. How dare he? So he, like, yells at Benjamin and is, like, threatening to call the cops on him. He's like, if you ever contact my daughter, I will have you arrested. Right. Ben is like, look, it wasn't an emotional thing. Our sex was, like, shaking hands. Don't worry about it. And Mr. Robinson's like, screw you, man. Yeah. That makes it worse, baby. Also, I'm definitely not shaking your hand. Right. And so this time he actually is kicked out of the boarding house. And he goes home because he has nowhere else to be. But on his way... He tries to go see Elaine in her dorm, and Elaine is already gone. And a roommate, played by Elaine May, which is a fun touch, comes down to give Ben a note. And the note is like, we can't see each other. Also, I'm getting married. Yeah. And so this begins his mad dash to find the wedding. 
which is our point number five. Well, you see, the doctor is at his son's wedding, but I'm sure it's over by now. He should be checking in any moment. Listen to me. I'm Dr. Smith's brother, Reverend Smith, and I'm supposed to perform the ceremony. I just got in from Portland, and I've forgotten what church, you see? Oh, well, I'm not sure, but you might try the First Presbyterian. Uh, that's on Allen Street. Thank you. The whole dash is scored to Mrs. Robinson, which is, as we said earlier, a really fun use of this song. Right. That sort of like chugging becomes the sound of him going around. Right. And so what basically happens is he is in Berkeley and figures it out. And then he has to drive to Santa Barbara. The geography of this is wild. No, because he goes home. Remember, because he goes to the Robinsons' house to try to find Elaine there. Oh, right. And that's when he busts in. Mrs. Robinson sees him. She goes, just one moment. She dials a number on the phone and is like, yeah, police, uh, someone's broken into my house. So, Ben, what is it you wanted? And then it's like, is he armed? Hold on, let me ask. Are you armed? And so Ben is like, I'm here for Elaine. And Mrs. Robinson says, you will never see Elaine again. He runs away. He's escaped the cops. So now he drives back to Berkeley. Right. To find Carl's friends to figure out where the wedding is. Carl's friends are able to give him the town. So he drives down there. At this point, his car dies, and he just runs to the best guest that he has for the church. Right. And he does manage to find them. All the doors are locked, except for a side door that goes up to the balcony. So he makes his way up there, and you get him screaming, Elaine! And banging on the glass. Yeah, because the choir loft is set off by glass, so he's banging on the glass to try to get the attention, but he's too late. They've already officially gotten married, yeah. which is a difference from the novel. In the novel, he manages to stop the wedding before it properly happens. And it's a difference from most movies. Right. It's a huge difference from, of course, Shrek, which I'm assuming this is riffing on in terms of interrupting a wedding. Yeah. You know, that's a pretty rare thing to happen in movies. Mike Nichols is mostly drawing on DreamWorks movies. Yeah. So Mike Nichols must be referencing stuff. He's a big fan of 2001, the year. Yeah. In the year 1967. As well as the Space Odyssey. I mean, he probably would be. Yeah, that movie hasn't come out yet. Most of us are. So, he's banging, and after they've officially gotten married, church-wise at least, Elaine hears, turns around, and screams his name, and starts fighting to get out of the church. After a shot that's reminiscent of the shot of him in the scuba suit, where he's walking around and everyone's talking at him, but all he and thus we hear is the breathing in... The, like, breathing of the scuba. Literally the sound of existence. Right. And then in this shot, you get Elaine getting yelled at by everyone around her, and we hear nothing except just, like, music and a rushing sound of her making this decision. It takes a while, and then eventually she yells out Ben and tries and to get to him. manages to meet up with him. At this point, Ben seizes the processional cross. Yes. Using it as a weapon, warding people away. Mrs. Robinson slaps her daughter a couple times. They manage to get out. He slides the cross across the doors to stop anyone from following them. And they run and they get on a bus. And it's kind of exhilarating. They've made it. They're together. They're holding hands as they get on the bus. They get to the back. They sit in the seat. And they sit down. And they laugh. And then both of their faces kind of fall. And then occasionally they might turn and look at each other and smile a little bit. And then turn back and just get this vacant look. Because... Now what? Now what? You can't just end with the dramatic gesture. You have to live beyond that. And these people don't really know what lives they want to live. 
we've talked this whole episode about how Ben is this person who is adrift and can't really connect to anything. And he's connected to Elaine more than anything else, but that doesn't mean he really has a direction beyond that. And Elaine is a person who herself doesn't seem to know what she wants to do with herself entirely. She was at school and abruptly disappeared. It's possible she was withdrawn in that time. Yeah. She probably isn't going to graduate. Right. And so we have these two people who are together, but what does that mean and what does that future look like? It's the anti-Richard Curtis. Right. And the sound of silence kicks in again, and it's just absolutely cutting. Yeah. It's devastating. When Mike Nichols hired Simon and Garfunkel to do the music, he played the sound of silence for the cast. And William Daniels, who played... Mr. Braddock, Ben's dad, said that it totally reframed how he thought of the movie because that idea is just everything that's happening in this movie. And so that scene of momentary exhilaration dropping to like, oh crap, I still don't know what to do. Like, that's the whole movie. Right. And so that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Hey, Will, do you find the romances of this movie believable? Not really, but I don't think it's our least believable. No, it's definitely not our least, but it's definitely not that believable. Sure. I find a hard time believing any woman would go through that date and then immediately be like, oh, I forgive you. Let's get a burger. Especially then on top of that, when she learns that he had been sleeping with her mom, then continuing the relationship too, ultimately. Yeah. Just there's no reason Elaine would make any of the decisions she makes. And that's also essential to the Ben-Mrs. Robinson relationship. Right. I feel like that one might be a little more believable because it's definitely got some elements of, like, psychological manipulation and abuse that could conceivably happen. Yeah, I think that one is a bad relationship, but a believable one. Right. So if you had to balance those two, we rank every movie on a 10-point scale where zero means we believe none of the romance and 10 means we believe all of it. Where would you rank The Graduate? That's what I was thinking, too. Cool. Because I agree. The Mrs. Robinson stuff works pretty darn well. The Elaine stuff is bananas. Right. Do you think that any of them are dateable? Elaine has the most going for her. But I think that she also, in her own way, is kind of adrift. Yeah. She's clearly also not got direction in life. No. And I think the extent to which we latch onto her is a testament to the power of Catherine Ross's performance. Right. Where from the moment she arrives, you're like, oh, she's the best. Yeah. Like, also, she's a break from such horrible people. But she's definitely still struggling. She's the most dateable of them, though. Yes. Do you think Ben and Elaine would stay together? If they do, it would just be because of inertia. Yes. I don't think this relationship has legs. No. I I would not be surprised at all if a year or even a couple of months or a couple of weeks from now, we find Ben back on the raft in his parents' pool. Yeah. I really doubt it goes anywhere, personally. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Yeah. I think that hopefully Elaine will go back to school and get her degree and join the workforce and live a fulfilling life she could go to space with midge yes i would not be mad about that no if she were in vertigo 3 the right stuff right but i really don't see ben doing well and that's honestly probably because he's depressed he's he's definitely (laughs) got a lot of depression going on this is the time when we're starting to get some 
psychiatric medication that might help. Yeah, he should go see an analyst. But I don't really see good things for him in his future. Apparently Uh, he grows up and sleeps with Elaine's daughter. Unlike the film The Graduate, this relationship does not have legs. I really want to just end the podcast on that line, and also maybe forever. (laughs) So, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? Because it's not an easy thing to do. No, I was trying to think about it, and there are no good people in this movie. I think there are some fun people on the periphery of this movie. Yeah, maybe the hotel clerk. That's what I was going to say. And that shows the extent to which it's like him or Elaine May. Or some of the cool teens with their loud music eating burgers because they look like they know how to live life. I am very pro-burger. So maybe one of them, but I think the hotel clerk is my favorite. The hotel clerk seems like a fun guy. I feel like he's got jokes. Yeah. Now, many of the films we have covered on this show have been turned into musicals. No. You do not think The Graduate should be a musical? I do not think so. Why is that? I think that... This movie uses music well, but I don't think it would be improved by having Ben or Mrs. Robinson or Elaine singing any songs. I think that a stage play, very possible, definitely influenced by stage. Indeed, there is a stage play of The Graduate. Doesn't shock me at all. Mike Nichols is clearly of a theater background. Yeah, it's partially based on the movie, partially based on the book, and it actually does incorporate a lot of the music from the movie, including Simon and Garfunkel, as well as some other music from the period, but it is not a musical. I just think that it wouldn't make sense. Like, it wouldn't be as good if Ben just broke into a song called Ennui and was singing about how he's adrift. Part of the point of many of these characters is that they don't have a lot of emotional variance, which would make them singing a bunch of songs fairly tiresome. Yeah. Because they would sound the same, which would be the point, but also would be boring. Right. It's just, it wouldn't make a good musical. Well, I think that about does it for our discussion of The Graduate, but I'm glad we had it. This movie's really, really good. Would recommend. It's amazing. I was very sad because when I was watching it on your Xbox, the only bit of the screen I got was like this big, like a tiny little square in the middle of the screen. You gotta zoom, man. And I couldn't figure out how to do that because I'm bad at technology. So we did watch it on a very bad transfer. Yeah. The colors were kind of muted. Everything was a little bit out of focus. There is a Criterion Blu-ray of this movie. And I would say the extent to which we talked about the visual storytelling of The Graduate is to a point that it is worth tracking down a way to watch this in high quality visuals. As opposed to the way we did, which was on a DVD that was formatted to be seen in widescreen on a square TV. So if you looked at the actual projection we were getting, there were black bars like widescreen above and below the picture but they only went to the edge of the picture we were seeing because it was not optimized for a modern widescreen TV. Right. I just hope that, for some reason, this shows up at the AFI now. I want to see it in theaters. That would be pretty cool. Speaking of things that Mark is looking forward to seeing, next week we are doing a different sort of rom-com classic, the 2004 Nicholas Sparks adaptation, The Notebook. I believe you mean known homophobe and terrible person, Nicholas Sparks. He's a very bad person. We'll be talking about that next week. Yes, I will have a lot of thoughts. I have very little interest in watching this movie. I feel like it is a missing hole in my romance movie knowledge, and I need to fill it. I just have never enjoyed any experience with Nicholas Sparks that I've had. Well, I've never seen any of the movies or read any of the books, so I've basically had no contacts with him except what I have read about him. Yeah. 
Which uh, was mostly bad. Yeah. So until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions or explain to us the physics of twirling tassels from your boobs in two separate directions. Hashtag tassel twist at love the love pod at gmail.com make sure to rate review and subscribe reviews in particular really help other people to be able to find the show last question what's the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie i think the big thing is to plan a multi-part date make the first part really bad to lower the bar for yourself so that the second part doesn't have to be super good and you can save your super good ideas for down the line. My main advice is don't follow any advice from this movie, but go to the zoo. Ooh. That was my first date with my high school girlfriend. How did that pan out? (laughs) So good. We did date for a year. Until next time, you are... I'm gay. (laughs) And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Robinson, Joe to Joe has left and gone away.